Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And we are on to another episode. So our guest today is Elizabeth Cerrito. She is a licensed therapist with experience in both inpatient detox facilities and private practice settings with an emphasis on relapse prevention. Drawing from her personal journey and triumph over addiction, she's here to talk about strength of the human spirit and the transformative power of resilience and support. The reason I wanted to have Liz on the podcast is her story is just so unique about being able to see really both sides of the addiction, growing up in a family that had addiction and had recovery. And then on top of that, her own journey through addiction and a community of support. And we're also going to talk about shame and how that holds us back and, and becomes a barrier to treatment. And also, we go into internal family systems and how we can use our parts to help us deal with shame and walk through that space. It is a real story of resilience and hope. And I hope that you get a lot out of this episode today. And if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help the podcast get found. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. So thank you for everyone who's done that. Just thanks a lot. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. All right, everyone, stay tuned for this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. My guest today is Liz Cerrito, and I really just, I know we're going to talk about shame because we already did that, which is a just a subject that I love to talk about and I don't love to talk about because shame is a sucky emotion in many ways. <laughs> it's hard, but we're going to talk about it. But before we do that, Liz, I, I just want to jump in and, and start to hear your story and have you introduce yourself and, and we'll get into that wonderful topic later. <laughs> That's what we yeah, absolutely. So my name is Liz Cerrito. I am a current mental health professional, as well as doing my own coaching stuff on the side. Shame, like you said, giant monster, and we'll definitely get to that. And I think that that kind of comes down to the basis a lot of times when it involves the escapisms that we need, in yeah, short. Exactly. Um, so as far as just kind of how... I came to be where I am today, I suppose, kind of my story. I grew up and was surrounded by addiction and recovery. Right. My father was everything. He was a creative artist, entrepreneur, and as much as I was his everything, addiction kind of pulled him deeper and deeper away from me. Right. 
And I was angry, right? As we all are. Why couldn't I be enough? And the story that kind of comes to mind is a movie I think a lot of us are familiar, but The Never-Ending Story. And there's that scene, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but The Swamp of Sorrows. Yeah, Swamp of Sorrows. Yeah, I love that movie. (laughs) And the, the little boy trying to get his horse through the Swamp of Sorrows, and he's just trying to get him to think positive, just trying to get him to stop going into despair and see the light. And he doesn't. Yeah. And that kind of really hit home with me as I watched it as an adult. And when I was 16, I lost my dad to both his addiction and his mental health. Yeah. And that was one of the rockiest parts of my life. And at the time, I didn't quite understand all the pieces. I didn't quite understand the addiction part. I was just angry, (laughs) to be honest. So you saw that going on. You saw his addiction and you saw that what was happening. But as a child, it's hard to understand it. But you saw it and you saw what was happening. To me, it was like, oh, well, you know, like, daddy's just having a bad day today, right? Or he's tired, or he's falling asleep, you know, (laughs) at the wheel or things like that. I'm like, it's fine. Everything's fine. You know, or why is he extra angry today? Or, you know, and I know that my mother and my stepfather did everything to protect them. And when I was a little kid, I was like, I can't tell them dad's not doing good because then I can't see him. So it was just this constant battle, if you will. But also, he was the most fun, the most brilliant mind. But he was really plagued by just a lot of demons in his head. Wow. So you had both of those those sides. I think that's what makes it so hard, right? It's like there are these amazing parts. And then there's this other part that just comes in and creates, like you said, demons yeah. in his head. I I remember somebody telling me, your dad was like a shooting star, right? He's so bright, but it couldn't last forever. And I think at the way he was burning, I don't know if it would have ended a different way. Right. To be honest. Because he didn't, he didn't want, he couldn't see it. He couldn't see the light. And he was the, the horse stuck in the swamp of sorrows. And there was like, there was no other side to him. Right. And you mix that along with mental health, that, that makes it challenging as well. Yeah. At the same time, though, when I was about four, my mom had met someone new. My parents had gotten divorced mm-hmm. right around um, the time I was born. And she had met him through Al-Anon, the 12-step program of... Wow. Loving yeah. people who go through addictions, and he had recently lost someone really special to him, and he started coming more into my life here and there, very carefully, of course, because I was a very <laughs> young and yeah possessive child, of course. Sure. But he became my stepdad, and uh-huh. he was involved in the AA world. I mean, I spent many a chip gathering time with him in the in the room, meeting all his friends, his community. So he was really into recovery. He saw this other side. Oh, my gosh. It was, yeah, it was the night and day of looking at the loneliness of addiction. And I remember there was one, I think it was the last Father's Day I ever saw my dad. I uh, went to his door, had a big bouquet of sunflowers, was so excited, and he opened the curtains and shut them. And I didn't see him again. Wow. Whereas looking at that isolation, that loneliness, it just feeds, right? If if you have no mirror to look into, if you have nothing but your own voice echoing back, good luck getting out of that. Right. That we really need others. Oh, you, you absolutely need others. And watching that through my stepdad, the side from my stepdad was everything. You know, it was it was like another family, right? He wound up getting in a motorcycle accident, couldn't go to meetings. So you know what they did? They came to our house. <laughs> yeah. And this just this amazing community and, and watching the shift, the changes, influencing me when I was little, you know, in the most positive of ways. And my stepdad did everything he could for my dad, would invite him on family vacations. Can you imagine that? Bringing your (laughs) wife's (laughs) ex-husband on vacation so he could have time with his kid. But, you know, growing up and seeing that world kind of opened my eyes because I got the Al-Anon side and I got the AA side. So you really grew up surrounded by both this addiction and recovery, seeing both sides of it and watching it play yeah. out. Yeah. And really watching what was working and what wasn't, you know, hearing the stories in the rooms, meeting the people and, you know, just watching the growth from my stepdad, most influential person of my life. So so you really, I mean, I'm just, I just think this is one of the reasons I just wanted 
to talk to you because yeah. you were in this world of seeing both sides of it at the same time and watching yeah. it and getting to, you know, you're seeing it. Up close and personal, yeah. Up close and personal. And I, I think that's a, such a unique perspective. I mean, a, a unique experience in a way. Yeah. No, I mean, it definitely was. And I think in my head, the thing that I had heard over and over is the idea of the Al-Anon of like, you know, you can't control it, you can't cure it <laughs> right? mentality and watching the other side of it and hearing other people who were alcoholics or people who struggled with addiction and watching their side of the stories and seeing a perspective that I never got from my dad. Because to me, I was like, well, he's infallible. There's nothing. He didn't do anything, you know, right? like he just abandoned me. And the reality is, no, he was in so much pain. And instead of reaching out for that community, instead of doing the things that all of these amazing men and women I've now met have been doing, he isolated. He buried himself deeper. He dug He dug his six-foot grave before it actually right. happened. And yeah, when I was 16, I, I got that. My mom and my stepdad walked in the room and told me that he had passed. Wow. And I knew it was coming, as weird as that sounds. I knew it. I just didn't know when. Right. But I... I I couldn't quite wrap my head around it for a very long time. And right. I think I stuffed that grief down <laughs> for a right. while. I mean, at that age, you're 16, right? You have, you're trying to be independent. You're trying to grow. You're doing all these things. I don't need my parents anymore. And then boom, you don't have one. Then all wow. of a sudden that person that was everything just, they're not there one day. And it's like that song from the fray, How to Save a Life. I kept thinking that in my head. Like, if I had just sat down, if I had just done this, if I have, I could have saved him. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, yeah. Liz, you couldn't have. Yeah. And you're, you know, like what you were saying earlier, you're watching him in the swamp of sorrows. Yeah. You're watching him there and you're seeing that happen. And I, I just imagine that's got to be incredibly hard. And then to get the news. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's hard also because at that point he had gotten so isolated that he he didn't have a lot of people who were actively there trying to support him because he had shut everyone out. And I guess looking at that and just looking at the isolating factors of just the shift of how people also handle death, handle that sort of death, right? Because that's not something you actively broadcast. <laughs> right. And when you when you say that sort of death, can you Tell me more about yeah, that. Yeah. So, I mean, just the, the long battle he had with addiction as a whole and then the fact that it wasn't until I later found out that he had taken all his pills that he had, methadone, sleeping pills, et cetera, and wandered out somewhere where no one could find him. Mm, I'm so and, sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm so and, sorry. You know, it's funny. My first, my gut reaction was, it is what it is, but that I've learned in my own work and as a therapist is like the immediate response of a trauma response, right? Yeah. Is that we've just, oh, well, that's just life. It isn't. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right? it isn't. But yeah. And so there is that stigma behind it of the mental health aspect and the addiction aspect. And so it kind of gets not as much sight on it or eyes on it, if you will, mm -hmm. because it is, it is hard and it is taboo and it is you know, you don't necessarily, people don't know what to do with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 It's, it's so overwhelming. We, we don't know how to handle those kind of things. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's, yeah, it's just so big that it's, it's hard to even figure it out. It is, it is, it is so big. Yeah. And I think the hard thing with that is, you know, grief is one of those, the most complicated things that exists. I believe, at least. I mean, there's tons of other things, but there's something about like the trauma of grief and the way that somebody explained it was like, you know, in, in life as a whole, we're like, oh, trauma, it's the big capital T's. It's the, you know, war and sexual assault and giant cataclysmic explosions and fires. And yes, those are. And there's also like the smaller T's that build up over time and they can yeah. be something as small as bullying. They can be something as small as a toxic relationship, but they build up and they live, leave us with a shock factor. So yeah. the question to ask yourself, is this tra traumatic? Did it shock you? Was there a shock value to you? If yes, right. yeah, it was. And sometimes we can't always recognize that because they're smaller. They don't, they don't like stand out in this big way that's so obvious and obvious to everyone around us. 
And sometimes we don't even realize we're traumatized, if that makes sense. No, we really don't. And I think the biggest thing is with that trauma is kind of this idea of, or what I see it as is like, you know, there's that saying of like, oh, you know, weed's a gateway drug. It's like, no, trauma. Trauma is the thing that leads to drugs. (laughs) Right. So after this experience, you started to move on. You started to put your life together and... I did. I got engaged. I bought a home. I was adulting. I finished college. I did all the things I had a job I liked, I thought, you know, and life was life was going pretty good. And right. it was in 2018 and I'm on my way to work and I get a call from my mother and she said, hey, are you are you home? And I said, I'm driving away from home. What's up? She's like, you need to go back home. And I was like, oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> what happened? Oh. She's like, I, I need you to go home. And I was like, it, immediately it brought that triggered feeling of something horrible has happened. And I, I can't, I can't. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted the relief that. and she wanted me be, me to be safe. Right. So I go back home eventually. And it turns out that that night my stepdad had passed away from a heart attack in the middle of the night. Oh, my and goodness. There was nothing that should have prompted it. He wasn't sick. He wasn't unhealthy. He worked out. He ate well, you know. So a complete shock. Like, this was a complete shock. Oh, I remember my first words out of my mouth were like, no. No. (laughs) You're wrong. (laughs) Oh, my God. You're wrong. And to me, it it hit me at this eventually as this. Yeah, this isn't life. This isn't this isn't fair, right? And right. I could get angry and I, I feel like in a lot of ways I dance through the five stages of grief, right? There's the Sure. Yeah. Denial, anger, rage, like all these things. But the thing that I think isn't mentioned enough about grief or the stages of grief, which really should yeah. be, is the last stage, anxiety. Yes. You are in just this constant state of fear that yeah. something else is gonna happen. The next shoes are gonna drop. So just to make sure I I kind of hear your story, it's like, you know, you grew up, you saw your dad and in all his pain and hurt and, and hardship and, and stuff. And, and he, he passed away. And then you also saw this other person who was working really hard to have a community and work on all their stuff. And then he passes away. And then you're in all of this grief and loss and dealing with all of this anxiety um it just it seems overwhelming another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app find a location near you at bank of slash talk to us what would you like the power to do Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, there was sometimes I was like, I can't even get out of bed. I don't want to. I don't want to keep, like, I don't want to hit play again. You know, and I think the hard thing is, is the hard thing about grief is the world keeps turning. Doesn't matter how loved that person was. You know, I went to, I spoke at his funeral. There was well over 200 people there of all walks of life. I want to stress that my stepdad was the most loved person by like, you know, little old ladies who he'd get coffee with to talk about life to like big kind of like gangster looking people. Like he just, people loved him. People loved him. And to see that much love and surrounding and whatnot was great. And I got to speak in front of everyone and get that support. But also... He was gone. Yeah. It was just like he was there and then he wasn't. And he had become everything that my dad hadn't couldn't be for me because of yeah. his mental illness, because of his addiction. He helped me go to school without student debt. You know, he oh got like he helped me live life and give me a life I never would have had without him. And he also offered the support and the the, the subtle don't tell your mom, but if you need me at three AM because of something you've done call me, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) he was my best friend, you know, and I had finally at that point in my life, I was so adamant that I was like, no, my dad's my dad. And then I was like, yeah, but this man's been there since I was four. Like he's there in all the ways my dad wasn't like, he's, he basically is my dad. And so in my head, I had gotten to this idea of like, oh, well, that's who he is to me. And then it was like, 
And then I lose him. I'm like, okay, yeah. okay, life, thank you. Didn't need that. And so dealing with that that grief, yeah, it was unbearable. I just was like, it was just like, I can't, I can't. I, I can't, can't do, do this. this. This is just so overwhelming. I can't do it. I there's no way. Yeah, and and going through all of that and having to even take the first step, I didn't know what to do, and so I was having panic attacks. So I went to my psychiatrist and I was like, "Help. I don't know what to do." And at the time, instead of seeing it as grief and suggesting other things, she was like, "You know what would be helpful? Let's see this as more of a panic." situation and give you medications to numb it, aka benzodiazepines. Oh, boy. And in my head, we go back to my dad. What did my dad teach me about pain? Oh, you fix it by numbing or you fix it by suicide. And in my head, those are my two options. (laughs) Right. Numb it or, yeah. And on the bottle. Exactly. And on the bottle that she gave me, it just said, take when needed. I'm like, well, I've, I've... I need it all the time. <laughs> what are you talking right. about? <laughs> so then you have all this stress and anxiety and you're given this prescription for a benzodiazepine and you just numb it away. Oh, yeah. And it, I mean, and I, didn't... I, I assume it works for that, <laughs> right? Unfortunately, it does. But the problem with that, <laughs> I mean, a lot of things are a problem with that. But what it's whenever I felt the symptoms arose, okay, great, take it. Take one, take the next. Then all of a sudden you're done with the bottle. Then, okay, well, I can't get a prescription right now. Now what else do I do? Okay, I go numb it with X, Y, and Z, you know? And so just consistently finding substances to just not feel. And the realization is, is that, you know, I I dance the five stages of grief like a damn ballroom dancer, you know? Right. But day by day, my tolerance went up. My use went up. My day by day started to not make sense. I was losing track of time. I started being noticed by people who loved me, right? Like, hey, you just told me that story. Or, hey, you're kind of slurring. Are you okay? And I look back at that time frame of when it started to kind of when my head came out a little bit. I don't really remember. And that's the terrifying thing. Yeah. But I was I think what I what I realized is at that time is everything that was important to me imploded. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um my job, my relationship, I imploded my entire life and at the time my fiance had reached out to my mom who also she just lost her husband, her second husband to right. really really tragically and now her only daughter is possibly going down the same path as her ex-husband who is no longer here you know wow i can't even imagine the level i get of guilt that like i deal with that a little bit sure i'm working on it but sure, i can't imagine course. the panic that she felt and so she had come down or come to work with my fiance at the time and trying to help pick up the pieces trying to help me get help but i wasn't ready right I was angry. And when they would try to find me places to go, I it was just a big F you. <laughs> wow. It, I was mad. And then I'd just go drive away. I don't know. This was mostly told by both of them after the fact. But the reality is, is that I, I had that realization of being kind of this weird way of understanding my dad for a second it was like i know they love me i i would i love them to pieces i'll do everything for them but this pain is too much i can't handle this pain i i have to numb it out and i remember and i think this was this was probably i'm sure one of the hardest things my mom ever had to do and one of the you know hardest things i had to do was her throwing in her boundary setting (laughs) right? She stayed out with me. She did all the things she tried. I wasn't listening. I don't really remember her coming out, to be honest. But Mm -hmm. I do remember this distinct moment. We were standing in my driveway and she was about to go. And she said something along the lines of, I can't sit here and watch you keep doing this to yourself. When you want help, let me know. I love you. And I didn't hear from her. That was it. And I was I was almost betrayed for a second. It was like, you're just yeah. going to leave me? <laughs> right. 
And it wasn't until there was a moment which I turned into a crazy person in the parking lot of a grocery store because I couldn't find my stash. (laughs) Throwing things out my car, like causing a little bit where people were looking. I was like, where is it? You know, crazy person moment. And I, I had the clarity in that moment to be, oh, it's gone too far. This, this has gone, gone too, far. too far. This is it. I I really can see myself here. I'm in a parking lot throwing all this stuff around, searching <sighs> yeah. for my stash. Yeah. That's where something clicked in you. Oh, absolutely. And I think hiding hiding it from someone who loves you so much is hard too. You know, I remember yeah. the reason I had gotten mad was apparently that my fiance at the time had gone into my car and threw my stuff out. And I was livid at him. Right. <laughs> it's like, how, how dare you try to help me? <laughs> yeah. How dare you try to help me? Oh, my goodness. And, so, uh, so what happened? Yeah. I mean, with all this. So yeah. how did you start moving out of this? And you're, you're in this moment. You have this moment. And you're kind yeah. of starting to realize, like, this is not this is this is bad. This is not right. Well, I called my mom. <laughs> <laughs> you called your mom. Well, she said she I would be my there mom. for when she you said, were ready. Yeah. And I went into a treatment center. I went into the two, actually. And it was it was tough because when you go through certain substances, there are very high issues when it comes to withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. Benzos, alcohol in particular, can cause seizures. So finding a right place that also supported not just substance, but trauma and grief and all these things. Yeah. And so I found an amazing place and went there. And it was the hardest thing <laughs> because, the, I mean, the reality is I'd been numbing all this stuff for months and months and months. And then, boom, you're sober. It's real. And you literally there. can't go to anything. Yeah. Yeah. Overwhelming. All you can now do I is have, face I, it. I can't. Yeah, you have to face it. I can't numb out. I can't get away. I can't escape it. And I don't know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But that's why you have support, right? That's why yeah. you you get support because you're right. You you don't know how to deal with it. You you can't deal with it. You alone. can't and deal with it. Yeah, that's even if, better. Yeah, if you think you can, oh, you are you are a foolish, foolish person. <laughs> right. But I mean, that's that's the challenging part, and and ultimately, like the idea of facing that grief to me, it was so terrifying that I did everything I could do to numb that part. Um, and that part ultimately was like this hurt little version of myself, if you will, because it wasn't just my stepdad's death. It was all the other stuff that I had unresolved that came piling up. And it's like every bad thing that happened just got bigger and bigger. And like, I like to imagine it as a metaphor. If we have like car, bunch of suitcases, things happen, throw the dirty laundry in a suitcase, throw it in the back of the car. You're like, don't want to deal with it right now. Got to keep driving. But one day, after God knows how many suitcases are in that that poor back seat, life will happen and the brakes will slam. And what happens when your back seat is full of very heavy full suitcases? Destruction, utter destruction. And so realizing, like, I gotta unpack this. I have to. I will. I will take out my passenger and I will take out me if I ever have to hit the brakes again. Wow. Oh my goodness. So there so, you are. There I am. And so I left in 2019, went back to go live with my mom for a bit, trying to pick up the pieces of my life. And then I sat there for, for a while with what do I do now? And I got into a grad school program and I went and sought my mental ca- health counseling degree. And so got you licensed. started to like take this and then. Oh, yeah. I just I just ran with it. I was like, I'm going to take all the things I learned because these people were astronomical. I mean, they helped me in ways that I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And they either sat with me in, in the proverbial shit, if you will, or right. they they walked with me hand by hand and like, let's let's go. Let's do this. And I was like, I want to do that for someone like I know there's not all these happy endings. I know. A lot of the times, I mean, statistically, 80% of people relapse when they leave places like this. And I was like, I'm not going to be one of those people. I'm going to do it different. Right. And so I got home. This is my favorite part (laughs) of the whole thing, (laughs) to be honest. So I get home, first day back from rehab, laying in bed, 6 a.m. rolls around. I hear pound, pound, pound at my door. 
who's here? I don't know. Who knows this? Like, what's going on? I walk out, half asleep, open the door. You know who it is? Who? My stepdad's sponsees. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So they show they, up. They show up. They have taken it into their job that they are going to be the dad figure for me. Get me back on my feet. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And... I mean, that just is a testament to who he was to them. Like, they don't they don't really know me that well, you know, but they right. they were like, no, we're we're showing up. We're taking I was like, I I'm like, I'm tired, guys. We're like, doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, and that whole summer, that must, I just that yeah. I, I just I got to slow down for a little bit because that's just Please. really I mean, for them to show up once again, it, it just shows I mean, the power of community and the power yeah. of connection and the power of kindness and mm -hmm. working on ourselves and talking to others, it ripples out to you. His yeah. work oh. rippled out to you. And it just, I don't know, it's like I get emotional <laughs> kind of That's like okay. just hearing that story, you know, because I, it's 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 just so touching that these these people who come to you and come to your aid. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. I think it's a story so important that I think other people need to understand the community as a whole and also what impact you can have. This is surprisingly the first time I've not cried saying it. So, <laughs> <laughs> But no, it is. I mean, it is that that instrumental. And the truth is, you know, I there's times I can still I could still reach out to any one of them right now and call them up. Hey, <laughs> I need <laughs> right. help or something's going on. Great. Great yeah. kid. What's up? Tell us what's going on, you know, and it's, yeah, he, the legacy he left behind, just otherworldly. So yeah. That's an amazing story. And you've taken all this to really do all this work and to, you know, start to help other people, like you said. So I, I want to go back a little bit because at the beginning mm -hmm. we were, we were talking about shame. We were going to talk about mm -hmm. shame and we mm -hmm. get into the story, but now that we kind of have this story, I, I want to talk about shame and, and how that played a role in your life and how now, you know, working with people, you can, you can help them walk through that part. Because I, I think, you know, when we talk about addiction, I think shame is, it's like, it's the undercurrent, you know, trauma, yeah. but that emotion of shame that comes with trauma yep. is, mm -hmm. you know, even, and those little T's, like you said, said, you know, it, it, it just creates this huge we got to get yeah. out of it. We've got to find a way out. You know, we can't handle all these emotions. And so can we go into that? Yeah, absolutely. So shame's an interesting thing. The way that I differentiate it, you know, we also hear the word guilt, right? right. And they are so similar and yet they're so different. And so the kind of the way I look at it is let's say we are at a four-way stop. And we creep in and someone like honks at us. Guilt means, oh man, I should have looked the other way. My bad. And you you just keep going. You move on. Shame. Someone honks. Immediately your thought is, oh my God, I'm such a bad person. I'm such a bad driver. I'm so thoughtless. I'm su such an idiot. Right. That's That's the inner turmoil. And the way that I kind of view it, or I've viewed it before, is if we think of like little us, right? Like... Imagine someone that you know that's like four, five, six. You can imagine your little self if you want. These little kids, they're like running around naked. They're having a great time. They are like telling you, I am the fastest runner in the world. I am, you know. And you're like, yes, you are. Or like, I have such beautiful hair. And you're like, yes, you do, you know. And it's just not there. That shame it's, is just. No, shame isn't there. They're, yeah. It's not until somebody. And have fun. <laughs> exactly. And it's not like somebody's going to be like, oh, it's, you know, until they're older. It's shameful to like walk around without pants. Like maybe you shouldn't do that. Society right. starts to teach us certain things. But then this, the little little voices start, right? So you're at school. You think you're the fastest runner. Everyone at home tells you you are. And you go to school and you realize you're not. Right. <laughs> but instead of someone, instead of just that realization, maybe one of the kids yells at you, slow poke. Right. Oh, well, maybe I am slow. Maybe, maybe I am a slow poke. And then it starts all the shame that starts happening throughout life. And they can be little moments. But what's important is to understand is that that shame voice that exists in our heads. I like to envision it as like a, another little body, right? Like. I've I've had clients, I'm like, okay, draw me what your shame monster is. 
Like, what does right. it look like? Is it like, you know, an angry, like someone I know has said like Oscar the Grouch, that's my shame monster. I was like, I got it. Like, so what's Oscar saying? Right. And the reality is understanding where that voice came from. So I know there's like the core belief setting. We all have one lit. And that's why there's those quotes of I'm enough. I am this, I am that like positive things. But that's negating a core, a negative core belief you have about yourself that you've learned from society in which all shame stems from. Right. So if mine is I'm not lovable and I've learned that from, I don't know, people telling me that, friends telling me that, whatever, society, I don't meet the qualifications. I get the negative result from whatever people are saying. I'm not a good person. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. Then that shame monster has really loud voice. But you start being able to break it down by looking at whose voice is it? Who actually told me that? Because little me does not think that. Right. If I went and sat down and had an interview with my four-year-old self, you'd be like, yeah, you're not good enough. I would never say that to her first off. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah. But that little, that little part of us gets really hurt and really taken over by that. And so like for you, as you, you know, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're going through your car, you know, looking through this. I, I just imagine like that moment also, like, it's like, this is, what am I doing here? And mm -hmm. shame just like kind of being there in all of that process. And Oh, yeah. Well, and I think even more so the aftermath, right? I come yeah. back and this. I mean, it's it's the, just that awkward moment of, like, people don't know how to interact with you. Yeah. People don't know how to handle it. And also, I don't know how to handle it. H how do I face my mom and say, hey, I'm really sorry. I scared you half to death. I'm, like, I all of a sudden, the shame's in there, like, you're a bad person. That was something I grappled with for so long, is right. this inner thought of you're a bad person, you're a bad person, you hurt people, you you know, whatever. And it just kept cycling. It keeps It keeps you off from getting getting even getting that support mm -hmm. and making that community and like yeah. breaking down that shame. So you've got that shame that stops you from connecting, I guess, until like, maybe like you said, that moment you have. Yeah. yeah. And I think the biggest, the biggest thing is like, you know, understanding what's your voice and what's the shame monster's voice. Right. Because yeah. If I were to sit, if I start saying all these negative things about myself, like, oh, like, I'm a bad person, I hurt people, I'm not worthy of anything, I'm whatever. One of the things or one of the tools I did is I had to have the front of my screen for a while be a little picture of four-year-old me, right? Right. And I'd look down at her little innocent looking face who hadn't gone through all the crap, who hadn't dealt with all the things. And I had a friend tell me, okay, why don't you say that to her? And I'm looking at this, like, innocence. And I was like, yeah. well... She's worth everything. What are you talking about? Like, she's amazing. Like, I would never say that to her. Yeah. And being able to kind of fix that because the reality is that version of us still lives in us somewhere. And one of the ways I know that is a lot of the times I'll watch clients get really upset or angry or whatever. And those are all valid emotions. And I don't say my next question to sound judgmental or condescending, but it's important is how old do you feel right now? Yeah. Because a lot of times when you have that anger swell and you're like, you get, you get paused and you get asked that you're like, well, kind of feel like I'm 16. Great. You're an angry teenager. What happened at that time? Because that part's getting triggered. That part of you is like upset. Or if you're genuinely like scared, okay, great. How old do you feel? I feel like I'm four. Sounds like you're like a really scared kid right now, you know, and validating yeah. that because you don't, if you think that you, just who you are all the time is who you are and your past doesn't affect you or these moments in life that change don't affect you, that's, that's not great. <laughs> that's not great. And we have to learn to talk to ourselves because like you said, the shame monster voice comes in and just does that. And I, and I'm also just reflecting as you're talking about how these community members kind of in a way when they came to you, they said, you're worthy. You're worthy yeah. of healing, you know, and you're worthy of getting support and kind of in a way, I guess, challenged your own shame monster to, Absolutely. to get out and, and to start to learn this stuff, to be able to uh -huh. do that work. And I know also we talked at the very beginning, we were talking about internal family systems too. And so let's 
because I think that would be really helpful for a lot of people yeah. to kind of learn about like, here we have the shame monster that, you know, gives us this voice. Like you said, you, you wouldn't say that to that that young girl or that young boy in that picture, because you see how they're running around, they're playing, they're full of joy and passion. You wouldn't say yeah. that, right? But sometimes that voice is so powerful and strong. Like we don't even know we're doing it. And then, you know, so we need, we need ways out. And so I want to hear about that part too, because here you go through all of this stuff. And like you said, you know, you realized all this stuff, but you have all, all that history. And you got the shame monster. And so learning like, okay, how do we do this? How do we, how do we learn to talk to ourselves in a way that's with kindness? Yeah. So one of the big things is how IFS works and its internal family systems. It's a really amazing concept, if you will, that I learned in grad school and kind of continue to learn about because I find it to be fascinating is it's this idea of we are made up of different parts, right? And kind of like what I was alluding to, like little kid us and angry teenage us and, you know, whatever else like that. And the other parts of it of the addict us, the workaholic, the whatever, like all these different parts that make us up. But the idea is there are no bad parts, right? So right. there's not like this evil, wicked part of you, right? So if I were to look at it like I mean, it's broken down into three of like the firefighters, the managers, the exiles, if you want to get more <laughs> factual, I suppose. Right. But the exile part is the hurt part, right? And the firefighters and the managers, they come out and they are like these protectors and they manage parts of your life to make sure that nothing harms the exile parts ever again. And they can do things that can get controlling, that can get critical. For instance, managers their role is the defense mechanism. And in everyday lingo, a, a manager-like gesture is when someone's like, man, I, yeah, it's just my dark humor. Mm, that's your manager. Well, yeah, I just work a lot. That's your manager, right? It's it's that controlling aspect. It's that need to kind of manage things. And dark humor is a great one. Right, yeah. And so with that, though, we get to kind of the idea of firefighters, right? And so they come out when there is a fire to fight. <laughs> and the thing is, is their number one goal, put out fires. They're trying to land the burning plane for us. So when our, our world is on fire, when things are not making sense that it is not possible to get out of it, they have to land the burning plane the safest way possible. And right. to the extremes, though, firefighters can take on the roles of suicide, of addiction, and instead of looking at that role of us and seeing it as like this big negative thing, I mean, the reality is like, I can look at that part of me that had the addiction and shifting it instead of being angry at that part of me to say, hey, you know what? Thank you for saving my life. Like, thank you for keeping me alive. Because ultimately, that was trying to keep me safe. Because right. I couldn't deal with the burning plane. I couldn't deal with what was happening. And instead of being angry, I can say, thanks, because I don't I don't know if at that moment in my life I would have made it because I did not have the tools. I did not have what I needed to survive at that time. So what you're saying is like a, a firefighter would come in and go, you know what? You're feeling all this anxiety. We got to take care of it. Go find your stuff. Let's do it. I'm not mm -hmm. going to you know, I'm not going to let you feel that way. That's yes. kind of like a firefighter. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And so learn, learning about that, and I guess the main recognition is like, we will have all these exiled parts, right? And and these two are like the managers and the firefighters, the great protectors, but being able to also look at those parts instead of being angry and just saying, hey, thank you. I also need to redirect your goal to be something else. So my anxiety part, great. I'm anxious. And I know you like to do all these like things that maybe aren't that great for my anxiety, you know, it'd be really helpful. Let's work on that to be better at organizing. Let's work at that to be better at, you know, implementing X, Y, and Z. There are no bad parts. There are no evil parts of us. There are no shameful parts of us. They are just parts trying to survive. Right. And being able to look at it that way instead. I had someone brilliantly articulate kind of the idea of like, trauma and mental health and kind of in that shame aspect. So like if we're walking down the street and we step on a rusty nail, AKA trauma, 
We have two options. We can go to the hospital and get help, or we can ignore it. Now, right. if we ignore it, that's usually because there's a little shame and like, oh, man, I have this rusty nail on my foot. And the longer it festers, the grosser it gets, the less likely you are to want to get help. So either festers and causes irreplaceable damage or we die from sepsis or we are forced right. to get help. Right. Yeah. Addiction, all of that, not any different. People don't seek help because of the stigma, because of the shame, because there is usually a secrecy and silence and judgment. But the famous quote that you'll hear in the rooms is always, we are as sick as our secrets. So if you're walking around with a rusty nail on your foot, you're not you going to get better. <laughs> right. And you need to ha be able to talk to these parts to walk through that, that piece and being able to identify those parts helps yeah. us do that. Being able to identify the firefighters, the managers, the exiles, we're able mm -hmm. to to walk through that and, and start to have a different voice to connect with our true yeah. selves. Yeah. And I think a big one also is just, you know, a big one also is anger. There's a lot of people who are angry. And one of the things that like, whether it's at themselves, at others, at the world, but one thing to look at with that is, and this is something I always have realized in my own work for myself and for the people I work with is anger is a secondary emotion. Right. And I say that so, for instance, road rage. Let's think of that. You are speeding through. Someone gets in your way. You're angry. You're like, I got to get to work. I'm going to be late. Great. <laughs> that's that's right. actually the fear. I'm going to be late. There's the anger. If I'm late, there are consequences. Or someone pulls into where we're at, honk on our horn, yell a few profanities. We're mad. We're angry. But we're not angry. We're scared that someone almost hit us, that someone almost damaged our car, that someone almost, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so being able to look at that as well as a, as another emotion to validate too is like, okay, I'm angry, but like, what's really behind that? Right. Yeah. To be able to like look deeper into it and see the underlying emotions so that we can maybe connect with a different kind of response that's going to be more helpful to us. Yeah. And I mean, I think ultimately when it comes just to the IFS system and shame and all that, I think one of the hardest things when it comes to recovery is, and this is the thing that I had the hardest time with, is the people you hurt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, ultimately your child, your brother, your sister, your mother, ultimately they don't really need to, they don't really need to understand addiction. They don't care if there's the age old debate of it's a choice or it's a disease. Ultimately, they just want you back. Right. Right. And like I told you before, that that those impactful words from my mom was you, you cannot convince someone to be sober. You cannot convince somebody to just suddenly everything's fine. You cannot love somebody enough or shame somebody enough into making them want to make them so themselves sober. Yeah. You could just you love know? them. You could just you be there just, and say, I'm <laughs> I'm here yep. for you. I'll support yeah. you when you're ready. I'll, when you're ready. I'll do whatever it takes to help you when you're ready to do it. Yeah. And ultimately, addiction isn't a failure, right? It's, it's a response to human yeah. suffering. It is a drive to try to escape suffering. It's not just a disease or a choice that society so badly wants us to think. It's a survival technique, as strange as that sounds. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And I think like what you were saying with your story is, you know, you get these roadblocks in the way from doing the healing from the pain, right? And addiction comes in and stops us from, from healing the hurt, the pain and, and our suffering. And then, you know, like shame keeps us, keeps us stuck because we won't reach out and we need to be able to find ways to have a voice for ourselves to connect with our, our, I guess I would call it our, our spirit, our true selves, our, yeah. our ability. And it, and it sounds like you were really able to do that. And now you're giving that to the world. You're giving it to other people. All the lessons that you learned through your hardships and suffering, you can pass that to other people. Cause I, I think once we, once we have suffering and we get through it, I, I just think we get called to help others through it. Well, that's just what we do. That's just what people do. When when you heal your pain, you you go out to help other people heal their pain because you know how horrible and awful it is to be alone. Yeah. And you witnessed all of that in your life. And your your story is so touching to me just to be able to 
now be able to look back and reflect on it and see all these different pieces and all these different sides. I mean, I think it's a unique experience that you have that you, you know, you now, you, you now can give to other people. And I, I just think that's, that's amazing. And I, I know we've <laughs> kind of gone a little bit long, so I'm kind of getting, getting here to the, to, to the end of this. Yeah. So I always ask one question at the end, yeah. when we get close to the end, you know, someone out there, here's your story and they're in pain, they're struggling and you want to tell them one thing. If you could say one thing to them, what would you want them to know? I would want them to know that this feeling will not last forever. Mm. You know, just looking at even the outsiders, like the, the the pony boy quote of nothing golden stays, nothing bad stays either. There, the inevitability of life is that things change. Yeah. If you lay on this, on the ground for the next amount of time, something in the outside world will change. If you just take the next breath life will change period that is a fact and just to remember that just breathe oh, just breathe reach out if you need help do it oh liz thank you so much for coming on how can people find you if they want to work with you or your story resonates yeah. with them how can they find you absolutely so the best way you can find me on linkedin so liz and then cerrito c i r r i t o I also own a company called Soulbound Coaching, which you can find me on Instagram as Soulbound, S-O-L, like the sun, bound, underscore coaching, or soulbound.coaching at Gmail. So any of those, find me, reach out to me. I am very open for conversation. My goal ultimately is just to hopefully change the direction of something somewhere <laughs> to play life. my part where I can. So yeah. Absolutely. And I'll put all those in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com so everybody can go there and check it out. Oh, Liz, thank you so much for of coming course. on. And just really thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your story because yeah. I, I think like that just helps other people know they're not alone out there. And so I just really appreciate you, you doing that yeah. and having the courage to share your story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a treat. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the links will be in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. So check that out. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and click the subscribe button in your podcast app. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.